Hello, Bridgeway. It's pre-election Sunday. That means in just a couple of days, uh, all of America will be voting if they haven't already started voting. But we do not vote in a vacuum. There's actually a wider context uh, of civility and a wider context of culture within which we vote. And so I want to talk about our civility. I want to talk about our civic unity and specifically with regard to the unity that's necessary in our country, even though within our church, the scriptures teach us that we are to maintain the unity of the spirit. We're to keep the unity of the spirit. So as Christians throughout the country and even throughout the world, God's word to us is to maintain or to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. But what about unity in the community? What about civic unity even outside of the church? That's what I want to talk about today in the message, the ballads of God's people. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we think about our country, as we think about all the different states and the different cities and counties, and even as we think about our own local neighborhoods, we do pray that you would bring peace and unity to the degree that we could at least have civility in our country. We take today's message and we ask that you would use it in our lives, in our homes, and in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. You know, as God's people and as we all go to the ballot box, if we haven't already sent in our ballots or whatever, you know, God wants us to make sure that whatever we do, we do it as unto the Lord. And that includes even our voting. In just a couple of days, Lord willing, I'll be standing in line and I'll be casting my vote in person. And some of you have already filled something out or, or voted through absentee. So we know that over uh, 45 to 50 million votes are already in. But I will be voting on Tuesday morning. And I want to encourage you, if you're thinking about voting or not voting, to vote. Our governor, who I like and is somewhat of an acquaintance, and his wife and my wife get together, both Korean and all that, here in the state of Maryland. I, I, I like him, uh, he, Republican Governor Larry Hogan. But there's something he did just a couple of weeks ago that I would not agree with. And I'm telling you this because if you have the power to vote, don't do this. He voted for Ronald Reagan. Yes, he voted for a dead president. Why? Because he didn't want to vote for the current president for re-election. He didn't want to vote for the candidate from the opposing party as his. And so he basically voted for somebody who's really not on the ballot. And what that does is really no vote at all. And so if you want your vote to count, then vote for someone. And I'm going to tell you exactly who to vote for when we get to the end of my message. But let me take you through a, a talk that I've done around the world, adding to it scripture and also some thoughts that are brand new. Today, I want to talk to you about the three forces against civic unity. The three forces against civic unity. As we think about the ballots of God's people, as we think about voting, beyond that, there's a broader context that we have to think about. And so what are the three forces against civic unity or community unity? Here's the first one. Polarization caused by fear. Polarization caused by fear. 
In other words, when there is fear in the culture, it creates a polarization where I'm going to run back to my group, to my safe corner. You're going to run back to your group, to your safe corner. And polarization actually can make one feel safe. And so when I see that there's all kinds of division, when I see that there's not civic unity, then that fear causes me to polarize myself and I go to my feed. I go to my group. I go to the echo chamber that reinforces what I believe to my bar, to my church, to my to my social group, and I become polarized, meaning those people out there think differently, but we people in here think the same, and now I feel safe because I'm around people who think like I do. Remember, we're talking about the three forces against civic unity, and one of them is this amazing polarization between different people groups, and it's stoked by fear. So there are some candidates, whether they're presidential or whether it's senatorial or congressional or local, who love to create a sense of fear because that fear then makes you want to be polarized with your group. And so that polarization caused by fear makes one feel safe. I know it sounds weird, but polarization actually makes me feel safer when I'm around people who think like me, whether those thoughts are good ones or not. Here's the second force that leads to civic unrest or a second force against civic unity. And that is politicization fueled by anger. Politicization fueled by anger. So polarization caused by fear leads to politicization that is fueled by anger. Now this Politicization makes me feel uh, uh, empowered, if you will. In other words, while my polarization makes me feel safe, I'm now ready to organize and do something and turn political, and it makes me feel empowered, but notice it's fueled by anger. So we said that this polarization makes me feel safe, but the politicization now makes me feel empowered. So now I'm gonna go out and I'm gonna do something. Why? I'm going to do something political listen to me, to protect my polarized group. So my, my polarization is a place I feel safe. Now, because of politics, you're coming against that polarized safe place of mine. Therefore, now I'm going to feel empowered to protect and fight against the very thing that made me feel safe. Even if the thing that made me feel safe is a bad ideology, is a, an ethnic-centric uh, kind of mentality, whatever it is, because I feel safe with this group of people, I feel safe with this ideology, now I'm going to become politically active to protect it that polarization, so I don't lose it, because it's the only place that makes me feel safe. But remember, it's caused by fear, the polarizing, but now the, the, the fuel of anger inside of me comes because I'm mad that you're going to take something away from me. I'm upset that it's not going to be the way it used to be. So then I'm going to do whatever it takes to protect the way things are for me even now. We're talking about the three forces against civic unity. Polarization caused by fear, politicization fueled by anger. Third and finally, radicalization inflamed by injustice. Radicalization 
inflamed by injustice. Notice these negative emotions and negative words and negative experiences, fear, anger, injustice. If I'm polarized, I feel safe in that group. Then I politicize in order to protect that because of my anger that you're gonna take that polarization away. And then finally, if I'm not careful, I become radicalized, inflamed by injustice. Because if you are going to somehow come against uh, the very group that I represent, that injustice that you have done to me inflames me and even gives me a sense of feeling emboldened, emboldened to do whatever it takes by whatever means necessary to stop you from taking away the benefits of my polarized group. And so we have radicalization inflamed by injustice and this radicalization makes me feel emboldened. These build on one another and the reason why it's important to understand it is because if I stick with polarization and if I'm motivated for politicization out of anger and then I feel like some injustice is coming upon me because I'm black, because I'm white, because I'm gay, because uh, I'm a, a woman or because uh, I don't want to pay taxes anymore or whatever the issue is in the echo chamber that I have found my safety in. If I feel like there's an injustice against me, my group or my polarized community, if I'm not careful enough of that injustice will inflame this sense of emboldenedness inside of me. And when someone is radicalized, listen to me, when they're radicalized, logic no longer makes sense. There is no sense of right and wrong. It feels right because we're inflamed by injustice. In fact, there are several examples of this just recently. White militias organized to kidnap a governor as evidence of a radicalized terrorist group. And we've seen terrorism in many different countries. There's terrorism in, in Nigeria right now. Nigeria is inflamed and on fire. There's terrorism in our own country where uh, people are radicalized. And then when, when they do that, they're emboldened to come against the injustice. And when they're emboldened to come against the injustice, there's no more right or wrong. That's why a woman can, can you know, drown her five kids uh, in, in a bathtub because she, in her mind, she's She's radicalized. There's a mental problem there. And see, anybody can be radicalized. It doesn't matter whether you're Middle Eastern. It doesn't matter whether you're Asian or, or African or American. It doesn't matter. Once you're radicalized, then again, your mind uh, puts into place that you are doing something that is right, even if it's something that is wrong, whether it's, again, trying to kidnap a governor or blow up a building uh, in America with a plane. That's what radicalization does. I remember when I was uh, doing a radio show called Reconciliation Live many, many years ago, and I was taking a trip uh, to Israel, and I took uh, some people with me. I always travel with people. It's really a form of discipleship in some ways. And I remember Tracy Tiernan, who's a morning talk show host for uh, Shine FM here in the Baltimore area. Before she got into that, she was with me, and we traveled together, and she's holding a microphone, and we're actually interviewing a Palestinian Christian. You see, they wanted me to speak on the whole Palestinian-Israeli uh, issue and the division there, and I didn't want to speak to it unless I went through a checkpoint. So I said, come on, we're going to go to a checkpoint. And we did. So we got on a plane. We went over to Israel, and I said, it's time. We're going through a checkpoint. I want to know what they go through when they go through a checkpoint to get to the Palestinian side, and I want to know what they go through 
when they come from the Palestinian side to the Israeli side. Well, anyway, we were connected with some people who allowed us to speak with a Palestinian Christian. He was running a jewelry shop. And so Tracy and I go into the back of the jewelry shop and we sit there and we interview him. What a, you know, just a, a beautiful Christian man. And he talked about what it meant to be a Christian in the Middle East, what it meant to be a, a Palestinian. And everything was going well. As Tracy's holding the microphone and I'm having the interview, everything is going so well. I'm asking question after question. Now I felt it was cool enough that our bond had been created that I could ask him the things that were really on my heart. What did I ask him? <laughs> I wanted to know about terrorist suicide bombers. So I asked him the question as we were sitting in the back of that jewelry shop. I won't mention his name. And I said to him, as a brother in the Lord and as people who I know felt oppressed, how... How is it that someone could take a vest full of bombs, carry it, go into a bus or a cafe, commit suicide and blow everyone up around it? And it was amazing because this same soft-spoken, gentle Christian man be began to answer our question in his his rapid speech got faster and his tone got higher and someone that was speaking soft and gentle turned into somebody who could not speak fast enough, high enough, intense enough. You could tell that his blood was boiling and he talked about why someone would do it. And his whole point was, you know, you have suicides in America. The only difference is people are hopeless. So when they uh, want to kill themselves, it's because they're hopeless. But here's the thing. When you've been oppressed by people like that over there and you realize that your situation that you're in is because of them, not all of you, only are you hopeless and you don't want to live anymore, but you want to take them down with you. I'm thinking to myself, how are we going to calm down now? <laughs> how are we going to just, you know, okay, we're going to get out of this. And then here's the thing. See, he had moved from polarization. He had moved from politicization. He had moved from fear and anger. He was inflamed by the injustice that he perceived, real or perceived. It's an injustice. And he had become radicalized when it came to this idea. And that can happen to any of us. And sure enough, we got out just fine. We changed the subject, said, thank you very much. I'm learning a lot from you. And we moved on. But radicalization doesn't have to happen just in the Middle East. It's not those people over there. It's us right here. We have those that perpetrate injustice. We have those that feel like they're victims of injustice. And however, however things get to that place, I still hold to the truth that comprehension begins with conversation. And if we can sit down and begin to talk to one another, somehow a bridge can be built. I've committed decades of my life to doing this. I remember when we were invited to go into Ferguson, uh, Missouri, after Michael Brown was killed and he had been laying on the street for four hours or whatever, and uh, nothing had changed from that August date when he was killed to the October or November date when we were there and we pulled together the police and the protesters and pastors and, and politicians, so on and so forth. We had everybody in the room for an entire day or two, uh, with the mayor, the chief of police, 21 protesters. And I tell you what, it was, it was amazing to try to host and navigate a conversation like that. Again, I take people with me, so, you know, I had uh, Johnny Fonseca and Tony Penny and David Heiliger and maybe a couple others and together we were trying to host this conversation.
I'll never forget we got into one at one point where this police officer, Officer Jerry, and these these protesters uh, were talking to one another in our meeting. What we didn't know is that there was a published picture of them in their local newspaper. Let me show it to you now. Now, I want you to notice Officer Jerry's face, and I want you to notice Deja and Mel. We didn't know them by name. This was a public picture just months before, but now they're in the room with us. And I think maybe even Heidegger was the one that found uh, that, that picture, but um, check this out. What happened through conversation, I asked the, the, the protesters, what do you want from the police? And the police were there, Jerry, his boss, the chief of police. They said, when you drive through Ferguson, we're tired of you just driving through and policing us, uh, pulling us over for no reason or because there's a taillight out or giving us tickets you know we can't afford, just harassing us day in and day out. You don't want a relationship, you just want to police us. And I remember when the uh, chief of police said, Chief Belmer was his name, he says, I'm going to tell my officers to slow down get off their computers and their cell phones, roll the window down, and just say hello. It was amazing the response of the protesters. 21 of them in there were clapping and so excited. It was like you just gave them candy or something because what they wanted was to be related to and to be known as human beings. And so then I asked the police, I said, what's your response? What do you want to say to the protesters? And Officer Jerry, the guy you saw in the picture there said, listen, this badge and this bulletproof vest does not protect me from the words you're saying to me. Like, I hope you're lying dead tonight in the streets and that your wife becomes a widow. You lay in the streets for four hours. He says, my badge and my bulletproof vest do not protect me from that. What am I saying? I'm saying that comprehension begins with conversation. And when you see civic unrest, it's often because of polarization, politicization and radicalization inflamed by injustice. And now people are at odds with one another. And it's not just in Ferguson a few years ago. No, it's Baltimore. It's Sanford, Florida. It's the Michigan State House where people are showing up with fully loaded guns. It's Minnesota. It's Nigeria. We've been talking about the three forces against civic unity, but now what I want to do is turn the corner and talk about the three forces of advancing civic unity, and then I want to tell you how to vote. Three forces advancing civic unity. And let me just say, as you've heard me say over the years, that comprehension begins with conversation. It doesn't end with that. It's got to lead. Listen, once you have comprehension, it's got to lead to transformation, change. Change in our hearts, change in our minds, change in our politics, change in our actions. So we want safety and prosperity for all the families in our country and even in the world. And we share stories that we can have in common. But the question becomes, what are those those forces that will advance civic unity? Here's the first one. Personalization. The personalization of human stories, common stories. In fact, when you share your story and when I share my story, it reminds us that this is personal. It's not just ideology. It's our real lives. And you can't discount someone's story. You can't discount Pastor William Jen's story from his sermon last week where he said a teacher made fun of the size of his eyes in front of classmates and embarrassed him. 
You can't discount my story of being a nine-year-old in a new house in a new neighborhood in Adelphi, Maryland. And after the first night, we wake up in the morning and the police are on the front lawn because someone had placed a cross in our front lawn and drove across my mom's new dogwood tree and skidded all over our, our brand new property. And my dad is out there with the police filing a report. And the nine-year-old kid is shaking in his boots saying, well, mommy, it's okay if we move to another neighborhood if they don't want us here to hear my mom say to this nine-year-old boy, myself, son, God gave us this house and we're not going anywhere. You can't discount people's stories. Personalization of common stories help us to understand that this is not just a political conversation on CNN or Fox News. This is real life. So here's my practical application for you. Tell your story. <laughs> Tell your story. Tell the good ones and maybe even the bad ones. Good stories of being pulled over by police. I mean, I've been pulled over by police and I've had some good stories. Not long ago, within the last year, I was pulled over by a police officer for something that was wrong with my license plate or something like that. He was the nicest guy ever. He came up to my car, called me, sir, asked for my license, asked me what the problem was. I told him what the problem was. He came back and said, here's how you can fix the problem. I hope you have a nice day. Good to meet you, sir. Bye. Like, whoa, we need to tell those good stories. One of my drivers years ago was a white uh, man who was a retired state trooper, still a friend to this day. His name was Bubba, all right? And Bubba used to drive me uh, and Tracy Tiernan to the radio show every Sunday night when we used to do Reconciliation Live on WAVA on Sunday nights. What am I saying? They're not all bad stories. We have to tell the good side and the bad side so we're not marring a, a whole group of people, including police officers. I mean, cops have helped me uh, throughout my life. I remember when we were as a group traveling to Dulles Airport on a ministry trip and we had a flat tire and a bunch of cops pulled over to help protect us while we were, okay, while others were changing the tire. But I was watching to make sure and to supervise the whole uh, scenario. So praise the Lord for good leadership. <laughs> but we have to share our bad stories too. And I won't share all of my bad stories. You don't need to share all of yours. And we need to think about when we share them, but share them we should because personalization of common stories helps us actually advance civic unity. I remember just about a year ago, we were living in Ellicott City, Maryland. I was sitting in my neighborhood reading my cell phone because I don't like to pull into my uh, cul-de-sac or my driveway on my phone because we have animals and we have kids and uh, they are different, uh, animals and kids and, and my wife. And when I pull in, they may be right there. And I don't want to be like, Shh, hold on, hold on. So I try to get it all done. So when I pull onto my driveway, I am ready to pull in. So anyway, oftentimes what I do, I would just pull over to the side of the road. There's a, an area that you know doesn't have any no parking signs. It doesn't have red or yellow uh, curves. It's just a neighborhood street and not in front of any particular house because there's a gap between the houses. So I'll pull over there and I'll just read my text and get through everything I need to get through, including my phone calls before I go in the house in five or 10 minutes. Sure enough, I'm there for about 10 minutes and a police officer pulls up from Howard County's finest and knocks on the window and says, sir, can I have your license? I'm like, well, sure you can, but why? What's the problem? There's not a no parking sign or anything. And he says, yes, man, I just have your license, please. So I give him my license registration. Everything he comes back. He goes, uh, Mr. Anderson, what are, you, what are you doing here? I said, well, I live in the neighborhood. <laughs> I've been here 19 years. How long have you been in Howard County? You know, and he says, well, one of your neighbors called and said that there was suspicious uh, activity out here. 
I said, well, if suspicious activity means reading your text in a legal parking position, then uh, we might need to do something about that. What do you think? He says, I'm really sorry, sir, for the disturbance. I said, would you like me to go up to the door, knock on the door and let them know that they don't have to be afraid of me? He says, no, sir, you don't have to do that. I'll do that uh, myself and let them know that everything's okay. But thank you very much and have a nice day. That was 20 minutes out of my life that I didn't need in my own neighborhood. See, the personalization of common stories is real and you can't discount people's stories. It's not just something you see on CNN. The coronavirus is not just a ticker of numbers and facts on the television screen. These are personal stories of Pastor Sandy who lost her sister, Pastor Steve Hartnett who lost his family member, Pastor Dave Michener who lost uh, his father, and uh, my, my daughter-in-law Kiri who lost her grandmother. These are real people with real losses who are really grieving and it's not just an ideological conversation we can have over lunch. And the way to advance Civic unity is to personalize our lives through common stories, but there's a second force to advance civic unity, and that is the humanization of one race over many. We talked about the personalization of common stories. Secondly, the humanization of one race over many. What do we mean by this? Well, here's what the scripture says. In Acts 17, 26, it says, from one man, he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. Acts 17, 26. In other words, from one man, he made every nation of men. In other words, the humanization of one race over many. We're not many races. We're one race, the human race. This verse not only helps us see that it's true, but the Human Genome Project back in uh, April of 2003, where they looked at all the DNA, and this is what they concluded, that three billion basic pairs of genetic letters in human beings who are, listen, 99.9% identical in every person. That means every human being on the face of the planet is 99.9% the same, and they tie it back to one set of parents, and guess what they call the woman? Eve. <laughs> Stealing from the Bible. But you know what? What about before 2003? Did people believe it? We needed science to confirm, we didn't need it, but science did confirm what the Bible had already been saying. Whether science confirms it or not, the Bible is true. From one man, he made every nation. So we've got to humanize one another. We cannot continue to dehumanize and demonize other people as if there's something different. If you're a human being, you're not four-fifths of a human being. You are fully human, whether white or black, Asian or Hispanic. We need to remember, friends, that we must remember humanization. One race, we're all brothers and sisters, and we need to understand that in the human family. Here's a practical application, okay? Vote as an every nation Christian. Vote as an every nation Christian. What do I mean by that? I mean that when you vote, you're voting in our nation as Americans, but we must advocate for every nationality. Nation in the Bible is ethnos, ethnic group. We must vote for every ethnic group that's a part of our country. 
And so when you vote, vote as an every nation, every nationality Christian. One nation under God, indivisible. Unity and justice for all, every ethnic group, every person. You see, our nation is where we come from. That's our place. But our ethnicity is who we come from. That's the God who created us. And we should never make our place bigger than the one who placed us. We should make sure that we understand that voting is important, but voting helps us to understand that we're not just voting in our own self-interest. We're voting in the self-interest of every human, every human being. So vote realizing that every individual matters to God. Everyone. So as Christians, we cannot just be concerned about our own ethnicity, but we must be concerned that there are real human beings locked in cages at the border, separated from their mommies and their daddies, real human beings. And God doesn't say, but you don't need to care for them or treat them as real human beings if they don't have their green card, if they don't have their citizenship. No, you care for people because they matter to God, regardless of whether they represent your politics or your ethnicity. Either you are a believer or you're not a believer. And if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, then you believe Genesis 1:27 that says that we were created, all of us, in the image of God, not in the image of our political party or even in the image of our nation. We must be concerned that black and brown people are being locked up in prisons in greater numbers and for longer sentences than their white counterparts for the same crimes while for-profit for white-owned corporations are making money off the inc incarcerations of black people. Those aren't just statistics, that's reality. God says that matters to me. We said there are three forces that are gonna advance civic unity. One, personalization of common stories. Two, humanization of one race over many. We're not talking about many races, we're talking about one, the human race. Let me give you the last and final one and then I'll bring this to a close and I'm gonna tell you who to vote for, <laughs> okay? Here we are, how are we doing on time? All right, I'm about to close this down. Let me give you the third and final one. Democratization of free thinking. Democratization of free thinking. In other words, we live in a democratic society. We live in a great republic, and that's a beautiful privilege that we have. Good democracy makes room for differences of opinions and perspectives. However, good Christianity makes no room for hate, for abuse, for bullying, for racism and injustice. Romans 13, one and two tells us we have to submit to governing authorities. Everyone must submit himself to governing authorities for there is no authority except that which is God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against God, God has, what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. And so we have to say, you know what? I need to submit to the government authority. And that's cool, but how do I square Romans 13 submitting to government authorities with Moses resisting Pharaoh to free the Israelites, or with Daniel in the lion's den, or with the three Hebrew boys in that fiery furnace? How do I, how do I somehow square that with Romans 13? 
Well, how do I square it with Peter's words in Acts chapter 5, verse 29? I must obey God rather than men. Let me tell you how to square it. You square it with your convictions, with a clear conscience, and with being willing to take the consequences when you stand up against ungodly authority. Jesus was willing to submit to the government punishment for his resistance, but Jesus never took up arms against the government, and we should never take up arms either. In our days of social injustice, we must resist, but we got to do it biblically and peacefully and be willing to take the consequences for it without ever taking up arms. We have the privilege to vote because generations of people fought, bled, and died for that privilege that has been earned on our behalf. But good Christians will see all the issues, they'll look at scripture, and then they'll vote their conscience. And you're not less of a Christian because you don't vote the same way other Christians do. Some people are convinced you cannot be a Christian and be a Democrat at the same time. Some people believe that you cannot be a Christian and be a Republican at the same time. But remember, voting is not a biblical concept. You can be a Christian and Republican. You can be a Christian and Democrat, or you can be like me, a Christian who's an independent, who's unaffiliated, who does not uh, choose one party. I choose Jesus's party and then I make my choices depending on who I like and who I think would be best for uh, the county, the country. But uh, I'm not beholden to any party except the Christian party and that's Jesus and the kingdom of God. But voting is not a biblical concept and you need to understand this. Voting is not a biblical concept. By the way, democracy is great, but it's not a biblical concept either. So when you're fighting for voting and fighting for democracy, just understand, I'm not saying it's unbiblical, I'm just saying it's not a, a concept that's in the Bible whereby we stand on it so strongly like, oh my gosh, you, you know, democracy, we must stand up for that because it's what God wants. And listen, understand, democracy is not a biblical concept found in the scriptures. I fight for democracy because I have a free will and I have human volition and I have a personal opinion, but not because it's a governmental philosophy that's ordained by Almighty God. And so it doesn't matter what party you're a part of. You need to look at the issues as a believer and make your decision based on your conscience and based on the scriptures. So what are some of those issues? You got abortion. You got same-sex marriage. You got poverty and justice for the least of these. You've got systemic racism. You've got taxes. You've got the economy. So how if one party is pretty cool on your, your biblical thinking with regard to abortion and same-sex marriage, and another party is cool with your ideology uh, and the scriptures with regard to poverty and justice and, and, and equity for all. So what do you do if you have those issues in both parties? Which one do you choose? Well, Jesus is telling you not to try to choose one over the other, one over the other, because they all matter to him. Don't let the world divide your thinking because it divided itself into two parties. You, you, can, you can vote your conscience. They're all important. They're, it's not a priority of one, two, three, four. Uh, like one uh, brother says, it's, it's all of them to God. And equally, God says these things matter to him. And when you're dealing with taxes and the economy, hey, listen, can I talk to you about taxes for a second? Remember that Romans 13 passage that I talked about submitting to government authority? Well, guess what the context is? Taxes. <laughs> taxes. Oh, we forgot. We forget to tell people that we only want to quote that verse when they're protests. 
But this passage actually tells us, and all you got to do is read down Romans 13, you get to verse 6. This is also why you pay taxes for the authorities or God's servants who give their full time to governing. Why don't you quote that one? <laughs> give everyone what you owe him. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. Why don't you quote that one? If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. Why do we want to quote Romans 13, but we never want to make it to verse 6? The context is paying your taxes. And if you want to go further, you get to verse, verse 8. It says, let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For he who loves as a fellow man has fulfilled the law. Hmm. Let no debt remain outstanding. Our national debt is over $30 trillion. Romans 13, Romans 13. Okay, read Romans 13. Talk about the debt. Talk about the deficit. Talk about submitting to government and stop skating on your taxes and whining every time you got to render unto Caesar that with a Caesar. And then you're going to tell people that somehow it's, it's a good thing that you don't pay taxes when the scripture says pay. The next time you quote Romans 13, you better talk about paying your taxes. Preach it, Anderson. All right, listen, let me bring this to a close. I told you I was going to tell you who to vote for. You ready? And the answer is not Jesus, because, you know, that's what a pastor is going to say. Vote for Jesus. Nope, that's not the answer. It's not Ronald Reagan, a dead president. Here's the answer. Vote for whoever you want. Vote for whoever you think will help the most people and represent the heart of God. The last practical application is the vote. You got two days. Vote your conscience. Vote who you think will help the most people. But vote. Well, today we're going to have a prayer vigil. I'm looking forward to praising God over the governing authorities and praising God over our nation and trusting that God will keep us at perfect peace. If you're available, if you're in the Columbia, Maryland area today at 2 p.m., we're going to get together outside in the parking lot and we're going to pray. We're going to praise. We're even going to take communion. We bow with me for a closing prayer. Lord, as we go into this next week, we pray your covering and your peace over our land. And Lord, even though we took a little extended time with this message, we're asking God that you would extend extra grace and mercy to our land. Forgive us, Lord, for where we have sinned. Personally, if you don't know Jesus as Lord and Savior, ask him to come into your life so he can govern your life. Say, Jesus, come into my life. I choose to follow you today. And Lord, as we end this sermon and as we end today's service, we pray that the Prince of Peace would be upon our land this week. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.